the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel will join the program today to talk about the $800 million settlement the state has reached with makers and distributors of opioids. A huge step to taking care of those who were victims of the addictive substances. Then we're going to meet a candidate for clerk of the city of Detroit. Denzel McCampbell will tell us why he's running to challenge current clerk Janice Winfrey. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Last week, a bipartisan coalition of state attorneys general announced a $26 billion settlement with four major pharmaceutical companies for their role in fueling the opioid epidemic. The state of Michigan, where the opioid crisis has been particularly deadly, could receive up to $800 million in funds for compensation and for addiction treatment. This is an historic victory. There is really no other way to frame it. But as America continues to combat opioid and prescription abuse, is this resolution just the beginning of a larger movement in healthcare accountability? Here to talk about the settlement and her work in holding drug companies responsible is Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Dana, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So let's start with the significance of this settlement, especially as we emerge from the pandemic when opioid overdoses were actually exacerbated. Yeah, I think during the course of the, um, you know, the COVID pandemic, because, you know, that was such a tragedy and we lost so many lives, I think we temporarily forgot about the opioid epidemic, which, um, you know, has taken the lives of, of tens of thousands of Michiganders over the course of not just, you know, years, but over decades. Uh, and so I think the settlement is going to be incredibly important. It's the second biggest settlement uh, in Michigan history in terms of um, bringing in money into the state, only second to the tobacco settlement of the 1990s. Uh, but this is going to be markedly different from the tobacco settlement. And one of the long-term complaints that people legitimately made about that settlement is that a tremendous amount of that money never went into abatement uh, for tobacco usage. That's not true of this settlement. Uh, and there are provisions that dictate that this money has to be used to abate the opioid crisis. And that means whether it's, you know, prevention uh, and certainly treatment of those that are currently suffering from addiction, that money is going to be used in all sorts of ways, but it will all be in some way, shape or form related to the opioid crisis. Mm. And give us a sense of how Michigan compares to other states when we're talking about opioids and opioid addiction. We've been saying for a long time that things were particularly acute here, but I wonder if you can put that in, in some national uh, national context. 
Well, I would say that compared to other states, we have been more hard hit uh, by the epidemic. And so as a result, you know, this formula was put together in terms of what percentage each state was going to receive and the territories and the tribes. And it's sort of a formula of population, uh, mortality rates, and also really the pill count. How many uh, pills were shipped to, you know, municipalities in the state of Michigan? And when you look at all those factors, we're actually going to be getting a higher percentage of these funds than our population would otherwise indicate. And that's because, unfortunately, uh, when you look at those other factors, mortality rates and the number uh, of people that were addicted to Michigan, our rates are worse. Mm. So as a result, we'll be getting more money. And that, that is why I think that Michigan is well served by this agreement. There are other states that are, are not as happy because they feel like they're not getting uh, what they deem to be their fair share uh, of these proceeds. But for Michigan, I think we've made out quite well. Um, and I think this money is going to go a long way towards uh, assisting, you know, an untold number of people that are that are suffering right now and really need help. Yeah. So, so also, I'd love for you to put this in context in terms of settlements for uh, of this kind, right? Uh, the tobacco settlement, for instance, uh, of, of many years ago, uh, and other kinds of settlements that that states enter into with, you know corporations and and others who who do things that uh, that are irresponsible how big is is this settlement in that context well it's definitely substantial it's not as big as the tobacco settlement which was in the billions Mm -hmm. and of course we even though that settlement i want to say was entered into in around 1994 we continue to receive um you know hundreds of millions of dollars from from that but again you know, that money went all kinds of places. It, it didn't, you know, the bulk of it did not go to abate tobacco usage. Um, there are other types of settlements that I, I think, first of all, in terms of opioids, this is not the first, nor is it the last of the settlements that we'll be entering into with Michigan. We um, entered into an earlier settlement with a uh, consulting firm where Michigan received almost $20 million, but we have lots of other cases that are pending. So for instance, we have a case in Wayne County that's pending against Walgreens. That's going to continue. We have a number of other distributors and manufacturers that we are still in negotiations with. So, you know, $800 million is a lot of money, but it's not the last of the opioid-related funds that we're going to be receiving in terms of our work to hold uh, drug companies accountable. Uh, so there'll be more money coming in. But when you when you contrast it with other settlements, you know, we have, uh, we continue to have the PFAS cases that are pending against chemical manufacturers. My hope is that we'll be receiving even more money uh, on those cases if we're successful. So we have some big cases that are pending on other matters as well. But as you suggested at the beginning of the segment, it really is an effort to hold companies accountable when they knowingly um, distribute products that hurt our state residents. And that's something that, you know, I'm committed to. Uh, If you profited off of people suffering in this state and you knew that your product was going to cause some sort of harm uh, to to Michiganders and you manufactured or disseminated uh, that product irrespective of those risks, then it shouldn't be our state tax dollars that pay to clean up the mess. 
it should be these companies that are responsible. And so even though whenever you have a civil case, you know, there's never going to be an admission of liability. It's not like a, a criminal case where you have to tell a court of law that you are guilty of the offense and then you have to state the underlying facts. Uh, you know, I would say that $800 million surely uh, seems to suggest that these companies think that there are liability. But I will say this is not just the money. There are another uh, a number of other parts and components of this settlement, like the J&J, uh, Johnson & Johnson. Mm-hmm. They're out of the opioid business. They can't manufacture opioids anymore. And these distributors that we settled with, they're going to have some really intense oversight over how they distribute these products and how much of the products are permitted to go to certain areas. And, you know, you're not going to have a situation anymore where there is enough pills for every man, woman, and child in a particular uh, locality and and no oversight. There's going to be very um, significant oversight now. So it's not just a matter of getting this money to treat those who need help right now, but it's also making sure that we're not creating new addicts uh, because of the really reckless policies that that were in place previous to this. Mm. And talk about the industry itself and the culpability that you would assign uh, to them because of this. I mean, I think there has been some debate about how much they knew uh, and and how aggressive they were in, in pushing these products, even though they knew, uh, and also how deep the culpability goes. Does it go beyond the pharmaceutical companies to... Um, to physicians and 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 other people who were responsible for treating people uh, rather than than them profiting off of, as you point out, profiting off of their misery. Well, certainly there are physicians that I think abused this process. There's no question about that. But you know, here you have these companies that created a product that they they knew was addictive and they knew would uh, create addicts. Uh, and but they didn't they didn't market it that way. They told physicians that these products, you know, you could take as as many uh, hydrocodone pills or oxycontin pills or what have you that that you wanted, and you would not become addicted, uh, and it would not have detrimental health effects. And they knew that wasn't true. They absolutely knew that, and they knew it for years. But they were making so much money off of it that they didn't care. Uh, and even, you know, McKinsey, which was a consulting firm that we entered into that earlier settlement with, I mean, they were actually assisting in this process where they would have um, an arrangement with the distributors where they'd say, okay, well, for every overdose, we know that makes this uh, pharmacy look bad. We'll pay you sort of, a, I would say, like a, a bonus for everybody who who overdoses to make up for the bad publicity you'll get from it. I mean, there was no thought at all about, wow, people are dying. We have to reevaluate what we're doing here. Um, I think that these companies love the fact that they could encourage, say, a dentist to prescribe, you know, 90 pills, uh, you know, of Vicodin to somebody who had, you know, uh, minor dental surgery, knowing that at the end of those 90 pills, they're going to want more of those pills, mm-hmm. right? Not only were, were those pills unnecessary to treat the, you know, short-term pain of somebody who had uh, minor dental surgery, but you were going to create an addict. And, and you would have situation after situation where people, um, 
you know, their only crime. These are people that, you know, many of them never involved in criminal activity uh, prior to them becoming addicted and did nothing wrong but take uh, a medication in accordance with the prescription uh, rendered by their doctor. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, now they're desperate to, you know, to ensure that either they get more pills or many of them, as we know, turn to illegal drugs like heroin and fentanyl. And because they were so desperate, uh, because the withdrawal impact uh, on opioids is so, so significant. It's a very, very hard substance to withdraw from. Um, and, you know, for your listeners that, that aren't familiar with the, the side effects, I mean, you get very ill. I mean, you get sick. Mm-hmm. It's like the worst case of flu you've ever had in your life. So people are desperate to get more of this just so they don't feel sick anymore. And, and the, the drug companies profited off of that. They made billions and billions of dollars off of that. And, I mean, it's unconscionable. And, and you know, it's time that they're held accountable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. We're talking about the massive settlement that uh, attorneys general across the country have reached with uh, makers of opioids. $800 million is Michigan's share of that settlement, an awful lot of money in order to be able to help treat some of the people who were victims of uh, the opioid crisis. Uh, We'd love to hear from you during the segment as well. What's your reaction to this national $26 billion settlement? Uh, Have you or anyone you know been impacted by the opioid epidemic? And how would you like to see Michigan spend this $800 million. Uh, what do we do? What do we need to do to protect more Michiganders uh, against these drugs? As always, 313 577 1019 is the number. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start with uh, David in Southfield. David, what's on your mind? Uh, yes. Uh, can you hear me well? I can sure you hear can. Me? Yep. Okay, very good. Uh, you know, I'm a physician and I'm a neurologist, and I treat patients, and I don't use the opioids because, uh, you know, I can't figure out, you know, who to give it to who doesn't. It's kind of complicated. I don't use it. But you know, patients are very demanding. They they will fire you as a doctor if you don't give it to them. They come mm. in with pain. They're severe. They're hurting, and they and they they're they're crying, and they want you to give them the medications. And so the patients are actually fueling the, the crisis. They actually, uh, you know, uh, I think I saw someone the other day, I think, that may kind of let me go because I think she probably wants me to give her medication. But, you know, the patients are actually demanding. When I came from, I, I, you know, I, I was, I'm in from North Carolina, but I came here, then I did some training, and I went somewhere else, came back, came back here. And when I came back here, uh, there was a doctor who was prescribing it more than I use. I'm usually treating more typical neurological problems. And there were so many patients who were on the opioids. And so one time I asked the patient, I said, do you want me to just treat your problem or you only give your medication? And mm. they said, I want you to give me my medication. Yeah. I don't want to hear all this stuff about education. You know, doctors yeah, know David, what opioids do. David, I don't I, know why someone thinks that they're being deceived by drug companies. Right. Doctors know and the David, I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I do want to get uh, Dana Nessel to be able to to respond to what you're saying. The, the, the liability that doctors have here obviously is is a, a dimension of this that's not really dealt with in the settlement. Is that right, Dana? 
Yeah, that's true. Um, although there are obviously all kinds of, you know, in terms of people who are addicted, um, like many of these people who are, are you know, opioid seekers, uh, because they've already been prescribed opioids and now they want more. Uh, and, and by the way, I, let me say this. I don't want to say that opioids are not a legitimate form of treatment in any set of circumstances, mm -hmm. uh, but I will say that they've been overprescribed and they've been prescribed in a litany of, of instances where it's not really necessary. But you have created, I think, a lot of people out there that uh, know about the, the short-term relief that they can get from opioids, and, um, and they now they want to continue to use them, irrespective of the fact, of course, that they'll have long-term health issues as a result in many, many cases. Uh, and we've sort of created this generation of people who, who want that immediate relief, irrespective of the consequences of it. Um, but we, you know, this, this money will go into alternative treatment forms, um, you know, alternative, um, you know, pain clinics and, and ways for people to manage that pain that doesn't result in them later overdosing uh, or having, you know, major health issues, physical and mental health issues that arise from the use of opioids. That being the case, you know, it's, it's a balance because there are certainly cases, and I'll just give you, uh, for instance, you know, my 80-year-old mother um, broke her back and, you know, was in horrible pain. And, you know, the physician that she went to at this point, you know, so hesitant to prescribe any opioids that even in that instance was like, well, I'm not going to prescribe it. And I was like, well, that seems like it's a little overboard, mm -hmm. you know, in that instance. So I, I think that the pendulum is kind of swung back and there are doctors that are nervous about prescribing these in any set of circumstances. Um, but I do think that because of the significance of the epidemic, you know, it's probably appropriate for doctors to be very, very careful. But I do understand now we have, we have, you know, a large number of patients that are going to be seeking this medication, mm -hmm. uh, even sometimes when it's it's really not good for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David, again, thanks very much for the call, uh, uh, General Nessel. I know you've have you've got to run soon, but before you do, I really want to ask you about this uh, attempt to investigate people who've been spreading false claims about the 2020 election to raise money or get publicity for themselves. Uh, talk about why that's an important step and what the lines are, in your mind, between free speech and something that can get you in legal trouble. So generally speaking, you know, I will say, uh, of course, this was a request made by the, you know, by the Senate Oversight Committee and, and Senator McBroom. And I think it should be noted, of course, that all but one of the members of that committee are Republicans. And when I say Republicans, I mean Trump-supporting Republicans. These, mm -hmm. were, these were people who were uh, avid and vocal supporters of the former president. However, after they spent eight months uh, investigating these claims of election fraud um, and, and, you know, interviewing dozens and dozens of witnesses and an exhaustive list of documents, the conclusion that they came to in their report is that while there was no uh, evidence of election fraud, there was evidence of multiple other kinds of fraud. And the kind of fraud they found were people who knowingly were disseminating this um, misinformation, disinformation about election fraud, and were profiting off of it. And so in accepting the request by the Senate Oversight Committee for, uh, to investigate, the initial thinking, I think, was like any other product, if you were to say, hey, I have this, I have this 
formula, this drink. Uh, and if you ingest it, it's going to do all kinds of things. It'll reverse aging and you'll lose weight. It prevents COVID. I don't know. A litany of things that you know are, are factually inaccurate. You know for a fact that that is not true information, but you market that product anyway, then that you've committed a crime. Mm-hmm. You are selling that product to people under false pretenses. And essentially, that was that was the sense that the Senate Oversight Committee got, that these uh, attorneys and other people knew that this information was false, but they were saying, give me money and I will prove that there was election fraud, even though they knew that none of the things they were saying were actually truthful or accurate. And so essentially they were scamming people, which is a crime. So we, you know, we decided to take that investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, my office is currently, um, you know, pursuing that investigation. Um, I will say for myself personally, at this point, I have um, built an isolation wall and I've removed myself personally from that investigation. Why? Because one of the individuals who uh, was mentioned and who is a potential target, um, all of a sudden, after we took the investigation, announced he'd be running against me, mm. which is, of course, you know, creating what he perceives to be, I think, a conflict of interest to try to get us to stop an investigation that, frankly, there's no other law enforcement agency in the state that can really handle this because I, I, I don't see the local counties that are involved handling a case of this magnitude. Um, so I guess my department will see where the investigation goes. But uh, I will say the part that I find to be interesting about it is if you could just all of a sudden, I don't know, sue the Department of Attorney General and then say, oh, you can't do an investigation into me now because there's conflict of interest because I just sued you after you knew an investigation had begun. I think that would be very problematic. Mm -hmm. You can't create a conflict to get out of an investigation. Um, But that investigation is ongoing. And I guess, um, you know, my my criminal division and my investigative division and my election division will have to see what it leads to. But I think I described basically what the premise of the investigation is about. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Attorney General Dana Nessel, always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. We'll talk to you. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to hear from Denzel McCampbell, who is a candidate for Detroit City Clerk, but also a member of the Detroit City Charter Provision Commission. Uh, We're going to talk to him about why he's running, why he wants to be the clerk, and what he thinks both about his race and Proposal P, which is the Charter Revision's question on the ballot, August 3rd. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The August primary election is just around the corner, and there's a lot on the line here in the city of Detroit. Voters are going to decide who will face off in November for mayor, 
for city clerk and for all nine city council positions. And we will decide whether to approve a pretty controversial overhaul of the city's charter, the document that creates the entire framework for city government. Current Detroit city clerk Janice Winfrey has faced criticism over her entire 16-year tenure in that position. But voters have always decided to keep her in that role since she's run for re-election, including a narrow victory over now Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist back in 2017. Now, several more candidates are trying again to unseat Winfrey. They include legislative staffer Beverly Kindle Walker, legislative aide and educator Michael Richard, and my next guest, who is Denzel McCampbell. He currently serves as communications director for Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and is also a member of the Detroit City Charter Revision Commission. He joins me now to talk about why he wants to be Detroit's next city clerk. Denzel McCampbell, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. Glad to be on. Mm-hmm. So I should also say up front that we have extended invitations to the other candidates in the clerk's race to join us here uh, on the program, and we're still hopeful that they will. Uh, clerk Janice Winfrey, of course, has been invited, and the other two challengers uh, are also welcome to come talk about why they would like to be clerk. Denzel, uh, I'm going to start with you with the question of the day. Why do you want to be Detroit's next city clerk? Absolutely. So I'm a Detroit native, born and raised on the east side, and I've been involved in election protection and voting rights work for the last decade. You know, I was the 866 R-Vote nonpartisan hotline. I was involved in that effort for many of the last election cycles where folks in the city of Detroit and really across the state of Michigan were calling and say. You know, I've been told that I can't vote or I need an ID to vote. And we know in Michigan that's not the case. And I would be one of the folks who make sure that folks actually were able to vote on um, a regular ballot and we were able to participate. And what I've seen in that effort and around voting rights organizing is that we continue to have problems in the city of Detroit when it comes to election administration, when it comes to getting information out um, that is accurate and timely, and also when it comes to educating and engaging folks. We saw record turnout in 2020 across the country, but we didn't see that record turnout in the city of Detroit. And it wasn't because Detroiters didn't care about what's going on. It's because that they weren't they weren't being engaged. And that's why I'm running for Detroit City Clerk, because I know we can be doing so much more when it comes to civic engagement. And of all of the issues that are impacting the city of Detroit and our residents, if we don't solidify our elections, the administration, the engagement, education for residents, um, we won't be able to make the meaningful change that Detroiters are demanding that um, to be made. So talk about the experiences that you've had in the past that make you qualified for this job. What what are they? Absolutely. So I'll first start with the election protection and voting rights organizing work that I, I mentioned. You know, I know election law because in that role, we had to know how folks can vote. What, in which ways could they vote? And what were the necessary things that folks needed to vote? 
on. So I've been well versed in the election law. Again, I would go around to clerks across the state to say, you know, we've gotten a lot of complaints around long lines. So let's work together to make sure that we're setting up your polling locations in a way that can get voters in and out in the most efficient fashion. I work with clerks to say, you know, your polling locations are opening late. And we had that problem constantly in the city of Detroit. How can we ensure that you are getting someone there on time to open up your polling location? Because we know that any inconvenience of voters um, could decrease the chance that they are voting. So I've done that work. I've worked with uh, civic engagement groups on educating folks. I Last fall, I ran a $30 million program across eight states on how I managed that program on educating voters on how to vote safely in the midst of a pandemic, where to vote, but also pushing back against the increased and gross misinformation that we saw during the 2020 election. So I'm very aware of the challenges that we're facing when it comes to attacks on the voting rights. I'm aware of Michigan election law. I also have the management skills to, to manage uh, the city clerk's office. But and, and then lastly, when it comes to community organizing, I've organized around various issues around water affordability, equitable development. And what we know is that when we meet folks where they are and connect the issues that they care about to how government is supposed to be working on their behalf, we increase the engagement. Folks then turn out to city council meetings. They call their council member. They call the mayor's office. And then they turn out to vote. And that is the way that we're going to increase participation and engagement and trust in the system of elections and the city clerk's office in the city of Detroit. Mm. So uh, Janice Winfrey, as I said in the open, has been the clerk here in the city of Detroit for 16 years. Uh, she's seeking another term, which would uh, give her a fifth term in that office. Uh, I, I think a lot of criticism that uh, that people have of her is about the way elections go uh, each time we do them here in the city of Detroit. Talk about why you would be different or, I guess, even better than Janice Winfrey at administering those elections, given the restraints that we have. I mean, uh, I'm always cautioning people to understand the the, the context in which uh, Janice Winfrey works. It's It's an office that has a tremendous amount of responsibility, but not funding that would match that level of, uh, <laughs> of responsibility and that uh, anybody who says they want to do it differently really has to account for how underfunded uh, that office is. So I, I want you to talk a little about the contrast between you and, and, and Janice, uh, but, but also talk about that office and how you'd work within the restraints that, uh, that exist there. Absolutely. And, and Stephen, I want to be clear. I, it is not lost upon me that the job and the role of the Detroit City Clerk is is one that, like you said, is is a difficult one. It's a large role and one that is underfunded. I definitely agree with that. What we've seen, I would say, the deficiencies that we've seen aren't really around budgeting. It's around making sure that folks have the robust training when we're talking about poll workers, making sure that we're training folks in multiple fashions when we talk about 
uh, whether it's hands-on, visually, um, audio training, the various ways that we know folks across the city learn, and also making sure that our training for poll workers is updated. You know, I was a part of the early planning group for Promote the Vote that turned into Proposal P. I mean, sorry, Proposal 3 in 2018. Um, I've been talking about Proposal P so much. But <laughs> Proposal 3, I was a part of that early planning group. And we saw so many changes in the law to increase accessibility across the state of Michigan. We have to make sure that our poll workers also have that information. So increasing that training. And on day one, I want to make sure that we're talking to employees in the city clerk's office to make sure those employees have what they need to perform in the best in their abilities in their role. And also bringing together civic engagement groups to make sure that we are establishing those partnerships to help on the resource side, to help on the people side, to say, I know folks across the city who are ready to help with privacy boosts, that are ready to help with pens, that are ready to help with people. And we just need to make sure that we're having those partnerships and having that feedback loop and accountability in the Detroit City Clerk's office. The other thing I'll touch on is we have to make sure we're increasing even beyond those civic engagement groups, but in schools. I had a roundtable during the um, campaign with educators, and they really want the Detroit City Clerk's Office to be involved in schools K through 12, establishing that foundation of civics and bringing folks up the bringing students up the ladder on how they can be involved in government. And we can also get those folks into the City Clerk's Office to be poll workers, right? To increase that engagement, to have generations of engaged and of engaged electorate. And then I also want to touch on the budgeting. You know, I'm of, of the belief that a government has to have a solid foundation when it comes to elections and civic engagement and education. If we do not have that, what the government does not have a strong leg to stand on. So as we're talking about the funding in the Detroit City Clerk's office, it, we really have to call um, in the elected officials in the city council and the mayor's office to ensure that we're funding the Detroit City Clerk's office adequately and, and giving the Detroit City Clerk's office what they need. And I know we're going to talk about Proposal P, but as a Detroit Charter Revision Commissioner, I supported language in the charter that will say that says that the Detroit City Clerk's office must be funded in a proportional way to increase civic engagement and education. Our current city clerk wrote back to the commission and asked that that language be struck out. So I know I know about the challenge of budgeting, and we really have to make sure in the city of Detroit that our priorities are in line with elections and civic engagement as well. Hmm. I'm talking with uh, Denzel McCampbell. He is a candidate for Detroit city clerk on the August 3rd primary ballot. Uh, right now he is the director of communications for uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Uh, we're talking about his candidacy for a Detroit city clerk. We're also going to talk a little later about his role on the Detroit city charter revision commission uh, and talk about proposal P, which is uh, that commission's uh, proposal to, to really radically change uh, the charter here in the city of Detroit. Uh, if you've got questions for Denzel, give us a call. Uh, let us know what questions you might have about the city clerk's office here in Detroit. Lots of controversy, uh, especially in 2020 over voting here in the city of Detroit. Um, but every time we go to ballot here, uh, there are some real questions about how well those elections are administered and whether people's access to the ballot is sufficiently protected by the process. Um, uh, give us a call. Let us what you know what you think are the biggest problems in 
uh, the clerk's office and what you'd like to see done about it. <clears throat> As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. And uh, you can also go to the Facebook page here at WDET or to Twitter and hashtag us, and uh, we'll work into the conversation. Uh, let's start with Cindy in the Cass Corridor. Cindy, what's on your mind? Yeah, uh, I've been uh, going down to the uh, clerk's office, and, and the current clerk is suppressing the vote. It, it was only two days ago, finally, after yelling at people, uh, they were collecting the ballots in boxes instead of letting the people get out and drop them in the drop box which I'm not sure is legal. Uh, Reverend Pinckney went to jail for returning somebody else's ballot. Okay. Uh, They don't post anything on the window except something that would suppress the vote of somebody who has trouble reading. The big letters say uh, July 19th deadline to register to vote. But then in small print and the way it was written, I wasn't sure I had to call the state twice to find out that what that means within the two-week uh, window before an election. Cindy, do you have a, a question here for, for, for Denzel or for me? Department of Elections, or you can't vote. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you try and register online, mm-hmm. you, you will be able to vote in November, but not in that upcoming t- window. Uh, right before the elections, and uh, uh, that's very unclear the way that's stated. Yeah. But uh, it, Cindy, every, I, I, they finally came out with the voters' guide on mm-hmm. Monday. Mm-hmm. They they f- came out and gave me a list of all the candidates on the same list that qualified to be a candidate by turning in enough petition signatures. Mm-hmm. That was on Monday. They or Tuesday. Cindy, I think I get the gist of where you're going here, and so I want to get Denzel McCampbell to, to respond. Uh, talk about these problems that Cindy's pointing out and the way that people are kept informed about when they vote, how they vote, who they're voting for. Uh, I think a lot of people in the city have complaints about that with regard to the clerk's office. Absolutely. And, you know, I it's really le- layers on it. And when we're talking about, Cindy was talking about the voter registration deadline. You know, we have same day, um, we have election day voter registration right now. And that has to be communicated to folks. Mm-hmm. We have uh, folks that are very transient in the city of Detroit who have to update their address to make sure that they're voting in their community. And that is allowed now to do that with the changes that Prop 3 and Promote the Vote brought. That's not being communicated to residents by the Detroit City Clerk's Office. I've done door to doors. I just the other day I had a senior who has voted in every election and she didn't even know that there was an election coming up on August 3rd because she hasn't received an application or ballot from the city clerk's office. Um, I I get this time and time again. I've done various senior home um, uh, senior building visits and I get the same thing. And you know. As Cindy talked about, folks do look out for the uh, elections newsletter, and that just came this week. But folks have been voting um, since the end of June by absentee. We have to make sure, and what I'm going to do as Detroit City Clerk is that we're getting information out early. We're getting out in a repetitive way, and we're also getting accurate information out of when an election is, what's who's on the ballot, what's on the ballot, and how folks can vote, right? I have Folks are calling me, calling the campaign saying, I haven't gotten my ballot, I haven't gotten an application, and I can't get out to a satellite location. Hmm. And that means that the chances of them being able to vote are very slim. And, you know, 
we can't have that in the city of Detroit, the city that is being targeted already by Republicans and Lansing when it comes to suppressing the vote. We can't have any of those uh, mistakes or problems here. We have to make sure that we have that robust education using multiple forms of communication, mail, uh, TV, digital ads, radio, this, the community stakeholders, precinct delegates, block clubs, neighborhood associations. We have to make sure all of those partnerships are in place so that people can be educated on how they can take action and be a voice in their city government. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue to learn more about Denzel McCampbell and his candidacy for Detroit City Clerk. We'll also talk to him about his role on the Detroit City Charter Revision Commission and Proposal P, which will appear on the ballot August 3rd. We'll also continue to hear from you, the listeners, Jane in Detroit, Adrian in Detroit, Ron in Detroit, and Bernadette in Old Redford. We'll try to get to you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Talking with Denzel McCampbell, he's a candidate for Detroit City Clerk, also a member of the Detroit City Charter Revision Commission. We're talking about his candidacy, and a little bit we're going to talk about uh, Proposal P, which is the charter revision question on the August 3rd ballot. We also want to hear from you, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. What do you think about the Office of Clerk now, the job that it does managing our elections, uh, and what do you think could be improved? Uh, also, if you have questions for Denzel about his candidacy, uh, this is the time and place uh, to ask them. Uh, Denzel, I want to uh, shift a little to, to talk about uh, your role on the Charter Revision Commission and Proposal P. Uh, there are no sh- There is no shortage of opposition uh, <laughs> to Proposal P, and, and I, I feel like I'm being bombarded in my mailbox, uh, mm-hmm. on billboards, uh, a little bit on television with, with ads that say why I shouldn't vote for it. Um, I want to give you a chance to talk about why you think I should vote for Proposal P and the work that you did with the others uh, to put that together. Absolutely. And I'll definitely touch on the opposition that we're seeing. But what I want to tell folks is that the Charter Revision Commission has spent the last three years after voters decided that we wanted to open up the charter for a revision and then elected a nine-member commission. Spent the last three years uh, having focus groups with residents that were uh, resident ran, uh, getting proposals and revisions in from residents. We had over 500 individual uh, revisions submitted to the commission and actually going through each and every one, doing an analysis that involved a legal analysis, a fiscal analysis, and really a practical analysis on is this something that fits in the charter and is this something that should go to uh, city council or administration. And, and some we did send, um, send over to the city council, but many um, we worked through with community members experts and and, uh, organizations across the city to come up with the revised charter that will be Proposal P, the People's Charter, on the ballot for August 3rd. And we really tried to 
have a revised charter that one, increase transparency in government, increase accountability of our officials in our city government, but also increase quality of life and, and try to bring more equity in a city where residents continue to feel unheard by their city government, where residents... I think we have maybe lost our connection. Residents. There you are. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. We, we lost you just for a second. So, but go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so this document came together for the demand from demands of the residents to increase equity and, and really to increase the quality of life or the various issues that we're seeing across the city. When we talk about water affordability, public transportation, the over-assessment of um, taxpayer, uh, the homes and taxes on homes, and, and even things as we're talking about police accountability, ensuring that police aren't um, a, a military force in the city, but actually serving um, on behalf of folks. So we that's what we tried to do in the proposal P. I believe it is a document that is very forward-thinking. It is a document that will increase um, the quality of life for residents and one that folks should really take a serious look at and support. So, so the, the criticism that a lot of people are leveling against Proposal P, some of it is about money, saying that it binds the city government's hands to spend money uh, from unidentified sources of revenue. The other criticism is that the things that are in Proposal P are things that belong on the legislative Table. In other words, they are things that that should be debated by uh, by the office holders in the city about policy. That they aren't constitutional kinds of issues that belong in the charter. If you could address both of those criticisms, that would be great. Absolutely. So I, I want to address the the policy aspect first, and I'll go into the budget. You know, it could be argued that you know, the city council and the mayor's office should take action on water affordability, that the city council and the mayor's office should take action on responsible contracting in the city. But we've had years upon years of residents demanding that that action be taken, and it hasn't. Our, you know, the commission is an elected body, and we had residents come to us to say, we don't want to depend on who's what council is in office, what mayor is in office, because we have tried to do that and our issues have not been taken care of. We want to ensure that our governing document, the framework of our government is set up in a way to ensure that these issues are at least addressed in an appropriate manner. So that's what we do in the uh, charter. We don't we don't overly prescribe how things should be laid out. We still give the city council and the mayor's office deep discretion on how to carry out these this framework. We give them the ability to create ordinances and in the best responsible and fiscally responsible way for this, the residents. But we provide the framework and things such as um, how do we take care of environmental justice and, and climate action in the city of Detroit after we've had three instances of flooding in the city in the last month and infrastructure? How do we ensure that public transportation is accessible to everyone in the city, especially a city that is deeply impoverished? And we used a study that we use a study that DDOT itself um, uh, made and, and recommended, right? So these are things that are in the charter, and I want to make sure I address that, that we don't overly prescribe. We still give great leverage and discretion to the city council mayor to perform their duties in the best way possible. And then when we talk about the budget and the, and the money, you know, it's been disheartened to see this number from the city on $500 uh, million a year. 
What I'll tell you, Stephen, is that the commission sent multiple communications to the administration, to the city council, to ask them to come to the table to work with us in a collaborative way to come up with a revised charter. We didn't get a response. We didn't get engagement from the city in this revised charter. We, we asked that you come to, they come to the table to say, how are things working with the current charter and what needs to be changed? We didn't get that engagement only for a few departments on their own. And when you get to, when we released the, the, the draft discussion, we hear this 500, well, first it was $3.4 billion over the lifespan. And it really was based off uh, you know, numbers that weren't actually there in the charter. For example, we have language in the charter that says, the city of Detroit shall work to increase employment opportunities for young people. You know, we have the Grow Detroit uh, youth program. We're just saying enhance that to make sure that we're doing that more and more. But the CFO's office came back and said that we have language to that mandates that the city of Detroit hire every young person in the city. Well, you know, while that may be great, that's not the language that's in the revised charter. And so we see these numbers built upon the what they call worst case scenarios, but it's not based on facts of the language in the charter. And the, all, the other thing I'll say is that we do not have funding mandates of the say, for example, the water affordability uh, plan, which was already passed by city council, just not implemented. We just say that an ordinance shall be created on the basis to make sure that uh, residents' income that the water rates are or the water bills are not more than three percent of a resident income, which is based off the Environmental Protection Agency's recommendation. But we still leave the discretion to the City Council administration to design how that program will look for residents in the city of Detroit. Uh, these are the things that are in the charter. It will not. Uh, take away pensions. We actually have language to protect the pensioners and pensions in the city of Detroit. It will not impact public services. We actually have language to enhance public services to make sure that city dollars are being used in the most appropriate way, in the most efficient way. So it's been really disheartening to see this attack on the charter, especially from folks that when you ask if they read the whole charter, they haven't. We've seen a, this being funded by corporations like DTE and Blue Cross Blue Shield when we actually enhance our health department and we enhance in um, environmental justice and sustainability. And I really want people to follow the money because these ads are expensive and you're being inundated with it and you have to ask who's paying for this and why are they doing so? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Denzel McCampbell, uh, it was really great to get to know you a little better here as a candidate for Detroit City Clerk and to hear your really passionate support for the work you did on the Charter Revision Commission and for Proposal P, which people will get a chance to vote on uh, on August 3rd. So uh, again, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Hope you stay safe. You too. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. I want to apologize to all of the callers that we had stacked up to talk with uh, Denzel McCampbell. We couldn't get to, to most of you because I had so many questions uh, myself. But, uh, but uh, you, you should go online uh, to Twitter. Uh, and if you have questions for Denzel, I, I'm sure you can post them there and tag him and tag me. Uh, and, and maybe he will be able uh, to answer those questions there. You can also check out WDET's news coverage of elections, which has been really robust, as it always is. Uh, you can go to WDET.org slash vote to find lots and lots of information about Denzel and other candidates and the ballot issues uh, there. 
Okay, come back tomorrow and we're going to hear from two of the candidates who are challenging Mike Duggan for mayor of Detroit into Tuesday's primary, Tom Barrow, who has run a number of times for that office, and Anthony Adams, who used to be Detroit's deputy mayor. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.